We are live. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Police Off the Cuff After Hours. I'm your host. My name is Mark DeMeo. I'm here with my co-host, my partner in all things law enforcement, the very handsome Bill Cannon. What's up, Bill? What up, man? What's happening? Uh, it's all good, man. It's nothing but gravy here. We have a very, very exciting show for you tonight. Um, we're going to bring him on right away, uh, and then we'll do some plugs. Um, he's a... Uh, He's had 25 years of law enforcement experience involved in terrorism. Um, he worked for the FBI, the CIA. At some point, he was the acting chief of the International Terrorist Operation Section uh, at the headquarters in Langley, Virginia. And now he's doing a ton of work um, in finding missing persons um, and sex trafficking. And uh, this is a very, very hot topic right now. We're very, very happy to have Dr. Richard Schoberl. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing great, and, I'm, and I appreciate and, and I'm honored to be on your show tonight. Yeah. Doctor, I'm so good, and I, when I heard that Tennessee accent, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> Did you think you need to bring in a fourth person? To be we, may, we may have to have an interpreter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you guys might have to have some closed captions underneath. <laughs> look, at, look at the difference between your background and mine. Like, you got a lot of books in your background. I don't have... <laughs> 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 there's a lot of stuff you you uh, you must you're a doctor so that's your that's your that's what you're doing um so where do we even start do you want to do you want to talk about uh your, your time with the fbi and stuff like that and then the cia and what you were doing with terrorism or do you want to just it's up to you you want to just jump into the human trafficking you know, I, I think you guys being retired law enforcement yourself understand that, you know, if you're an athlete, you're an athlete. If you can play baseball, you can play basketball. If you play basketball, you can play football. So if you've investigated terrorism, you can pretty much investigate most anything. And, you know, and the nexus between terrorism and human trafficking isn't quite that unique. It, you know, it's it's there. And I spent a great deal of time working counterterrorism and, uh, you know, working with with departments like NYPD and then also with, you know, globally with MI5 and MI6. And I think, you know, the one thing that we have to understand as a society is that terrorism, like every other crime, is is evolving. And, you know, we see the nexus with human trafficking and terrorism with the with the Islamic State organization and they when they were actually utilizing uh, the women and selling them for 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 funding to fund their terrorist movement, to fund what they were doing. And, you know, um, one of the things we see now is is the fact that, uh, you know, human trafficking is, you know, it, it's not unique to anybody anywhere. It's 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 just now being, uh, you know, broadened our, our horizons being broadened by, oh, my gosh, human trafficking is happening here. No, it's not. It's happening over there and over there, but not here. It's happening everywhere. And I think that's the that's the big key right now is displacing the, the disinformation. Uh, that, you know, that a zip tie on a cart at Kroger or at Publix or at Target's going to get you kidnapped. I mean, look, Liam Nielsen has, you know, really run the gamut on what people's perception of what human trafficking is. It's not that. Uh, it's not that at all. And we have a huge uh, epidemic with what's going on. And I think we're going to be surprised when we see the aftermath of what COVID has left us with when we talk about the vulnerability of everyone, particularly the youth being at home online and what's going to happen with with those victims that we don't know 
exists right now. Dr. Schoen, can I, I just stop you for one second? Yeah. One of the things I want you to define, because our audience doesn't know the difference, <laughs> tell us the difference between human trafficking versus human smuggling. Yeah. Um, very simply defined as voluntary or involuntary. Both make a lot of money. Okay. No one ever has raised their hand and said, please traffic me. But we have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people wanting to be smuggled into this country or any other country for that matter, through push and pull factors. And when you talk about it and you try to debate immigration or illegal immigration and we talk about it, you're like, hold on a minute. We've got this woman with her baby in a plastic sack and a dirty gallon of water crossing a desert to get here to the U.S. How bad must it be where she's from that she's willing to go through all that? to get here. And then once she gets here, she pays someone an absorbent amount of money to get her and her family over the border into the U.S. That's called smuggling. But now once they're here, sometimes smuggling opens the door to be trafficked because it raises their risk factors of vulnerability. And now they have to pay off that debt bondage that they may not have had before. And so when we look at that, when you see the container truck or the semi truck that's come through the border with 80 people crammed inside, you know, that's human smuggling. Now, will those individuals potentially be trafficked? It's possible. It's quite possible because the risk level is up there. They've got to pay off their debt to get here. So it's almost like an indentured servant. It's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's exactly what it is. It's an. It's yeah, but, uh, I have a feeling like some of these people are probably um, coming in with a little bit more money than other people. And by that I mean, there's people coming right to, uh, the uh, you know the edge of Mexico because you see them. They they don't look none for the worse for the wear. They're 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 clean. They they have a phone that's charged. Um, <laughs> they're dressed. They're not dirty. You know they don't look hungry at all. You just you know you know what I'm talking about like they're getting smuggled from from point A all the way to the door, so they, those people have to be coming in with a little bit more money then. Certainly, and I think you're seeing rich. I think you're seeing every level of socioeconomic status come across the border, and some people can afford to get here without without others. But then you know when we talk about the border, we talk about the the complexity of everything that's coming across there. You know, we're looking at drug trafficking, we're looking at terrorism. We're looking at human trafficking, smuggling. I mean, and then the spillover violence that happens within those border towns that's there. And then, you know, how do you tell a farmer, hey, listen, you know, um, this is, you know, this is this is your border. You can't protect it. It's your land, but you can't protect it. You can't have your your your, your amendment right to bear arms if you have a foreign invader come over. So, I mean, you know, it, there's a lot of complexities when we look at this problem that can be exacerbated pretty quickly. Those border states, the ones that you mentioned, like, the, you know, the guy owns a farm. I don't even know what it's like. I can't even imagine. I guess it's just people walking across his farm, and it's right up to the farmhouse. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. It's, it's, uh, they're, they're hungry. They're going to steal what they need, right? And, you know, at, at, at a necessity, we all, we all know from our law enforcement careers that people steal for for various reasons, for profit, some, some at a necessity. You know, how do you not – you know, think about this as the woman who went into the grocery store and, and stole a, a can of Similac to feed her 
feed her kid. You know, when people steal out of necessity, they just mar marched hundreds of miles through a border and are thirsty. So they're stealing that in necessity. Right. So I'm not saying it's right by no means. I'm just saying that, you know, you have a farmer trying to protect his land, trying to protect his, his investment and his family. And then you have these individuals coming across. It's complex. There's no really, doubt about it. The small towns too. And the, the, the bordering towns, and now they have this influx, a lot of extra people with yeah. uh, with with no place to lay their head at night. Mm -hmm. And then where are the services going? You know, the services are being displaced that the community members are paying for um, because how, how are we? I mean, that's one thing Americans are, you know, at the root of it all, we're humanitarians. Right. We're going to be the first people to, to raise our hands and say, let let us help you out here because that's just who we are by nature, um, you know. Obviously, this problem has gotten to a point that it shouldn't have got to, regardless of, of the current administration's plan or, or actually no plan. You know, when we look at um, what's happened, um, whether you agree or don't agree, there should have been a plan to 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 address it before it happened. And I want to bring up to the fact that, like, you know, when we talk about, you know, FEMA and the Federal Emergency Management Agency, it was literally defined. It was created to be enacted during times of disaster, whether man-made, right, or otherwise. And they were deployed to the border, but yet we're not calling the border a disaster or a crisis yet. But and why, that's, is, and why is FEMA there, right? If it's not a yeah. disaster. Yeah. <laughs> that's Doc, I want to show you this. April 30th, 90 people that were smuggled were found in a house in Houston. Let me just play this quick tape. because an hour went by quickly here's police on this uh, situation and in the process of uh we had our tactical operations team swat uh go in and execute the search warrant and when they got inside the house they realized that this is actually gonna turn into a smuggling a human smuggling investigation so uh that part of it will be handled by the hsi investigators that are on scene now but we do have some uh, of our criminal division representatives here from Homicide, Major Assault, Family Victims, Special Victims Division, and Vice Division. When we got into the house, we realized that there were over 90 people inside. And so we immediately began to assess uh, any kind of a special threat after that. Once we isolated that, we wanted to be, make sure we rendered uh, any kind of a, a medical care. So we had HFD with us. Uh, we are concerned that there may be some positive COVID cases inside the house. So we do have our health department in route. They will do some rapid testing for that. So we will keep them in the house for now. Uh, and they begin to do their investigation. So that's our first concern. And then at some point, uh, once we figure out how many positive COVID cases we have, we may have to quarantine. I just wanted to um, to show to show that and your comments on that. I mean, how does ninety people enter a house without anyone in the neighborhood seeing them? You know. Well, and, obviously somebody called. Right, but the and the other well, they they responded there for a report of a kidnapping, and so someone obviously called the police to get them there. But ninety people in a house, and it, I didn't want to play the whole report, but it turned out there was five females and 85 males. So just think of being one of those females among 85 males. At least five or six of them were showing uh, symptoms of COVID. And 
Most of the, I think 99% of them were over the age of 25. So they were obviously there as you differentiated between trafficking and smuggling. They were there to, to get a job. Yeah, and, and that's often what we see here when, when we look at cases like this. But, you know, it, 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 I mean, you know, Mark, you brought it up. Like, how did nobody see this? Yeah, I mean, or, you know, Bill, you're 90 people going into a house. Obviously, that type of foot traffic must have been normal for that neighborhood, not to be <laughs> as ordinary for people to call in, you know, that, that level of foot traffic. I mean, it, it's sad to know the unknowns that are out there that exist. Cause if this is the percentage of what we know is happening, what don't we know is happening? Right. You know, when I, I used to teach at a college too, in, uh, in Westchester, a private college and a guy, a detective came up from Myrtle beach, South Carolina. He was trying to recruit students to go down there on the police department. And he said, one of their biggest problems down there was human trafficking. And I was sort of like shocked Myrtle beach has a huge human trafficking problem, but that's what he told us. Well, I guess uh, how much of it has to do with uh, what we're talking about, human trafficking and prostitution? Well, a lot of it has to do, when you look at it, it's a business. So it's $150 billion, $150 billion a year business globally. And, you know, it's creeping in on being the fastest growing criminal enterprise right, right behind the drug trade. And the reason why it's simple when you look at it, you can only sell that drug once, but you can sell that girl or that boy over and over and over and over. They're a reusable commodity. So, you know, drug dealers are businessmen and they realize that and they understand that. And they know that they can sell that girl 20 to 40 times a day and, and make profit off of her versus selling that drug once and, and, and being done. And it's easy to control these individuals. People always say, why don't they just get away? Why don't they just walk away from the situation? Because it can't. There are a lot of different factors that, that, that fall into that, you know, whether psychological or physical, but these individuals control them. And, you know, I have a close friend of mine, she's a prosecutor. And she said, Rich, the hardest thing for me to do is to convince a jury that this is human trafficking. All they can think about is the movie taken and abducting someone and taking them and selling them and auction them. That's what they see human trafficking is, but they don't realize it's force, fraud and coercion through any means at all. And, I, and, you know, when we look at these victims that are out there, you know, people always say like these big time events like the Super Bowl or, you know, large scale events is what fosters human trafficking. That's really not the case at all, even though the statistics may show that. You know, no man's going on the Internet and typing in on the Internet. Um, I need a trafficking victim. They're they're looking for prostitution. They're looking for a stripper. They're looking for prostitution. They're hanging out with their buddies or smoking cigars, drinking beer. And they're bringing in something like this. And the traffic curve is meeting the demand that what they're looking for. And that's what about the, like the local whorehouse in, in a particular neighborhood and the girls that are working there. They don't speak English. You don't know how long they've been here. Uh, they're probably brought here illegally. <laughs> and um, what happens? It's it's like, it's like all the people in the neighborhood. They're, 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 they're going over to, to Why is it? Why is it that? You must have your phone on. Yeah, the other thing is these, um, you see that they're in almost every neighborhood, these what they would call these illegal massage parlors. 
Well, yeah, that's what I'm talking they're about. Every, I mean, they're everywhere. Well, it's not specifically prostitution, but, you know, they call them rug, rub and tug places, right? Yeah. And they're all over the place. And, I mean, the police can shut them down and they're open in another location the next day. So that, I mean, has to be organized crime. And there has to be a lot of the politics are allowing this just to happen, you know? A lot of these uh, that are coming in, and let's just specifically talk about the the massage parlors because it's a it's a an illicit business in its own right in a segment of, of human trafficking these girls are promised you know lucrative jobs in the poor town that they're from in china or, or south korea or whatever asian country that they're coming from and when they bring them in here then they put them to work in the massage parlor but entice them or force them into providing sexual services. And there's actually a website that you can go to called Rub Maps. And, you know, and it literally, and you could search it by city and you can go in there and find this, the actual city and then the massage parlors and it'll give ratings out to what they actually provide, what services they provide and the codes to use in order to do this. The problem with these massage parlors is that they're so manpower intensive for law enforcement to work. And, you know, these girls come over here, they got to pay off a certain amount of debt. They end up working in there. They don't speak English. Right. So how are they going to, you know, tell law enforcement? Plus, their traffickers psychologically, you know, manipulate them and say, hey, look, you're the ones that are committing illegal acts, too. And you're here illegally. If you do something, we'll let them know and then you'll get sent back. So there's a lot of control mechanisms. Yeah, but um, they're also legalizing prostitution in New York um, and all these uh, other blue states around the country. And what happened? So when you say you're le- so you're not going to arrest the prostitute anymore. So there's no interview. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why are you here? Who brought you here? It's just, uh, let's say, you, I don't know. Are you even ra- raiding the house that supposedly ha- has it? Uh, if you're legalizing it, how often are the police going to show up there now? Mark, you don't mean legalized. They're decriminalizing it. They're okay, not enforcing so, okay, it. You arrest the prostitute. Why, right. why would she yeah. tell you anything if she knows already or she's been told by her captor that, um, don't worry, nothing's going to happen to you. They can't arrest they, they You're not going to get charged with anything. Yeah, I think it's only just recently. Come back in the fold. There's no, there's no reason to interview her or to talk to her. You probably can't. Yeah, I think it's only recently we've started being more victim centric when we start looking at these individuals and not uh, look, taking it from a uh, an approach where we're arresting them for human trafficking. You know, one of the problems is what you know, I think what we're doing is we're not we're not going to arrest our way out of this problem. It's just that's not going to happen. We're not going to do that. In fact, there was a I was just at a police executive research forum conference where a researcher from John Jay College was talking about um the demand for sex and she had done a study where eight out of ten men said that they would pay for sex if it were legal eight out of ten seven out of ten said they'd pay for it if they knew they wouldn't get caught so we're only looking at a one-point deviation whether it was legal or whether we knew we would get caught or not Mm -hmm. So we're not going to arrest our way by arresting the Johns, who are later going to plead out to prostitution. Anyway. Johns, but I mean, you never even get a chance to interview the uh, the, the the prostitute at this point because she's technically right. not under arrest. So and why I, would she tell you anything? 
and and how many people do you typically have on your on your your squad that speak mandarin or that may speak you know a foreign language you know we don't it's not that so much we don't have the opportunity as much as that we don't take the opportunity because we don't have this i'm not going to say the skill set but the resources to mm-hmm. do this you know and it's like i said at the very beginning we can't be everywhere all the time we just there's just not it's impossible mm-hmm. well i always thought that you know we in on the nypd we had a unit a public morals unit and i always felt that that seemed to be a bit of a waste of time because arresting prostitutes other than the fact that uh you're trying to protect them from their captors. And even now, when you uh, they want to decriminalize it, how about the human trafficking element of it? How are we going to fight that? How are we out. going to enforce that? You'll never find out. They'll never, if you're not going to arrest them, or but when I say arrest, I mean detain them. That's what an arrest is. You're not allowed to leave right now. I'm going to talk to you. Um, if that's not even the case, how are you going to find out that she's in um, an uncomfortable situation, that she doesn't want to be in there because you're not going to talk to her. Yeah. So I mean, basically, are you even answering that radio call? I think there's a, uh, a house of prostitution next door to me. Okay, thank you. <laughs> what are we going to well, do about it? What's your priorities at that time, right? I mean, when we look at law enforcement, we look at, you know, law enforcement has changed so much over the years. I mean, you know, now law enforcement's the catch-all. Oh, the dog's barking next door. Call the cops. Yeah, that's that's what it became, yeah. You know? All the the Karen's calling up. You want, they they want law, they expect law enforcement. They don't want, they expect law enforcement to do everything. And then they armchair quarterback every decision that's made, which is easy to do when you're watching it on a video feed after it's happened, you know, uh, you, when you're second guessing things, but you know, we can't be everywhere all the time. Just can't. And it's almost impossible. So you have to prioritize what you're responding to and, and what you take as, as a priority. And if we start looking at human trafficking as a priority, then let's start looking at like what parts of human trafficking are we going to look at as a priority? Because I'll tell you, one of the biggest concerns is like indentured servitude. You know, everybody automatically thinks sex trafficking. When we think of human trafficking, that's where it first goes automatic. But there's so many, obviously so many other different forms of it. But when we look at domestic servitude and how it goes unrecognized, because it is a clandestine crime, you're advertising for sex. You see that prostitute because she comes out, she goes to a hotel motel, or she's advertised at a hotel motel, but a domestic slave or domestic servitude who comes to this country to be a nanny, to be a caretaker, to clean yeah. the house, do all that stuff, never leaves that house. So what are you going to do? Go knock on every door? And go, hey, do you have somebody in here that shouldn't be in here or is being held as a slave? You know, that's one of the biggest concerns because everyone that we find, how many are there that we don't see? Well, how many of them are hired by affluent people? <laughs> I wouldn't, <laughs> where would I fit my endangered servitude in my apartment, my tiny, <laughs> I have room for myself. Right? <laughs> you know, it's people who have money. It's people who have money. And they're calling over to wherever the country they came from, and they're sending them. But these politicians and these people with money, they get busted all the time. Having uh, people from their country that, you know, for you know, 15, 20 years, generations of people working for them as basically slaves. Mm-hmm. Richard, they, so they you're saying that, doing service to them, though. Uh, Richard, Sorry, you're man. saying now that arresting, and we're saying that, you know, prostitution is being decriminalized. So how, I'm asking you, how do we fight 
human trafficking? How do we spot it? How do people, uh, you know, uh, at the airport, the airport police spot human potential human trafficking? How do we spot homes with 90 people in it? You know, I mean, and then what's the follow-up investigation to make sure we do something meaningful to combat, combat human trafficking and human smuggling? Well, let's just take the first point, um, Bill, and talk about if we legalize prostitution. All right. Same, same question is if we legalize drugs, are we going to have less drug addicts? Are we going to have less of a gateway to people becoming addicts in regards to this? Will that supply still be fed through illegal channels or we will we have controlled brothels? I don't think legalizing the sex industry is going to help the human trafficking industry because, you know, it's still going to be fed by demand and that demand is going to be met by people who can meet that demand whether it's illegal or legal. And I think as a society, there's this situation when you look at from gambling, like the country says, all right, we can gamble here. It's legal, but it's not legal here. It's not legal here. It's not legal here. We can have prostitution, but it's legal here, but not everywhere else. So, you know, when we look at like enforcing laws, it's, it's, it's really complex because Congress is the one that sets these laws. Our lawmakers are the ones that look at these laws and say, we can do this here if there is, I think, an alternative motivation for them, if it's money or profit or, or what have you, when we start talking about that. I don't think legalizing prostitution is going to help human trafficking one bit. Uh, hey, Leah, Leah Powers says, uh, would showing photos of men caught at the Johns for paying for sex help? That's a good question. They've tried all of that stuff. They've tried um, forfeiting the Johns cause. They've tried publishing the John's names in the local paper. I don't know if any of those ways yeah. are, in fact, effective. I'll tell you what NYP, NYPD does, and I thought it was a pretty unique thing. They have a they had a to, as a way of being proactive. Uh, they have a phone number that um, you, you are in a in this in the online ads for sex. And when you text it or call it, they send you a text message and said, you're welcome, comma. This is the NYPD. You just responded to an online uh, ad for sex. We could be at your house arresting you right now. Understand that this is your first warning. Your number has now been stored. Next time you will be arrested. Yeah. And if you don't think that gives somebody the pucker factor immediately, surely it does. Particularly those Absolutely. from. Hey, uh, I, noticed, I noticed you were involved in, it looks like from your Instagram page, catching, uh, well, finding. Fine some uh some girls that were missing mm -hmm. and uh tell us about how that works like uh, wh what is the investigation like that like you know if, if you look at just like all crime you look at it from a statistical point we know that one in three runaways we know what feeds the funnel to trafficking we know homeless uh you know feed the funnel we know that that runaways and missing children feed the funnel and uh, foster kids feed the funnel. So when we see a kid go missing, particularly a vulnerable teenager, we know that they often resort to what we refer to as survival sex. So they get out on the street and they have to have uh, shelter, food, you know, clothing, money. So we look at the fact that uh, they're going to resort to survival sex. So the longer they're on the street, the more endangered they are. So we look at it from a point like, all right, she's missing. Let's go. And I mean, hey, I got a 17 year old daughter and one of the first girls that I rescued when I was working with with this organization as a non law enforcement officer. Um, she was 14. And at that time, my daughter was 13. And I, and I thought to myself, this this kid is, is somebody's daughter could be mine. Uh, 
you know, it's somebody's. I, I would want somebody to find her if they could. And, you know, law enforcement typically don't have the resources to go after chronic runaways, but we do work with law enforcement. We're like, Hey guys, you know, this is what we're going to do. You know? And I remember sitting in one of my, uh, you know, coworkers cars, we're doing surveillance and he's retired NCIS, uh, Naval criminal investigative service. And, you know, we're, I'm creating the missing poster in the car, what she looks like, putting her picture on there when she was last spotted. And then you just do the old school, you know, police work where you pound the pavement, you're talking to to homeless people and you're talking to, you know, uh, people on the street, businesses, you're pulling cameras for review. You're looking at where, where they went, what they're doing and following them. And, and then, you know, one of the first cases we worked this individual, you know, she was, she was located 21 miles from home near the airport in a hotel. And, and unfortunate for her, you know, she befriended somebody who took advantage of her and they ended up trafficking her a couple times to people uh, on their floor, but they met her on the city bus. She got on the city bus and the, you know, they approached her and said, Hey, do you need a place to stay? And she's like, yeah, I do. And uh, they took her in and then, and then trafficked her out. And, uh, and I think some of the problems when we look at these missing kids is, you know, there's, you know, upward of 2 million runaways in this country and one in three are trafficked. So how are we to say, well, you're not the one, you're the two and three. So we won't worry about you. But, you know, when you look at the statistics, it's it's sheer alarming uh, when we when we look at the potential that's out there, the risk factors for these kids to be trafficked. And COVID has opened that door so much more because kids being online, traffickers know now that they can they can go online and, and find their prey much easier. Because I always tell people traffickers, you know, they're like fishermen. They're not going to fish in a parking lot. They know where to go. They know the social right. networks to go to. It's just easier for them now to, to even do that. And if kids could be online any more than they already are, right? But they are. And that just makes the situation so much easier for them. Well, Mark, you want to go to a commercial quick? Hey, what's up, everybody? You already know about this. Uh, it's the world's best hot sauce, uh, Silk City Hot Sauce. It's made in small batches using pure ingredients. Locally grown peppers are the foundation of every single bottle of Silk City Hot Sauce. I've had every single flavor they have, and there's a lot of flavors. There's Bobby Biggs Chipotle, Aztec Attack, Badass Jew, Slurp, Mango Madness, Climate Change. Um, if you go to SilkCityHotSauce.com and you put in the com uh, the coupon code OTC for Off the Cuff, uh, you'll get a 15% discount. Each bottle's at $5.99, and uh, you can get four bottles, and you're hooked up, man. Trust me. It's beautiful. I love it. I have it on my food every day. If anyone's looking to move out of New York City or Westchester because of high taxes, Carol Waters is a realtor down in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. It's a beach realty group. Her husband's a retired FDNY. He was a bartender at Fitzpatrick's Hotel for 20 years. Now she's down in Myrtle Beach, and she's one of the top real estate salespersons down there. So give Carol Waters a call, 914-261-6681. If you're looking for a great attorney, retired police officer Joseph Murray, he's actually got his um, he's got his his uh, website up now, and I'm blocking it. There it is. Website jmurray-law.com. He's a great friend of the show, and Joe has been a big supporter of Police Off the Cuff. He's been on the show numerous times as a guest, and uh, as I said, he's a wonderful guy, and he's a great supporter of us. Police off the cuff night at Bardo Restaurant Tuesday, 518 at 7 o'clock. 
Joe Lisi is a retired NYPD captain who owns that restaurant. He offered to have a police off the cuff night where Mark and I will meet and greet, kiss babies, sign autographs, take pictures, you know, say hello to your grandmother, whatever you want us to do. Please support this. It's on Tuesday, 518 at 7 p.m., 350 West 46th Street. The other night there was a shooting in Times Square. The restaurant next to Bordeaux had 60 reservations, every single one of them canceled. These folks are coming back from COVID. They need your support. Thanks a lot. That was a good one. That's interesting. And uh, shout out to uh, NYC1919 for your $5 super chat. Much appreciated. And to all the fans tuning in tonight, I mentioned Leah Power, Raquel uh, Pranzo, uh, uh, Bill Ryan's investigative group, Scotty Wagner. Joe Murray just uh, dropped a $5 on us. Thank you, Joe Murray. Um, Princess uh, Mick, Mitch. Uh, so many people uh, tuning in tonight. This is great. And we want to thank you also, too, for uh, for being so kind to us in our show. And uh, don't forget, we have a Patreon. And uh, we're also building up a website uh, where we're going to have merch there. Uh, our dreams are finally going to come true. We're going to have some uh, really cool merch. Uh, maybe we'll get a Detective Pat shirt out there and uh, – <laughs> Miss Homicide shirt, so you can have them. And uh, Michael, Mark Cooley. <laughs> I'm trying to say it, man. Mark Cooley. Mark Cooley, I think it is. Mark Cooley. Yeah, there you go. Mark Cooley. I like that. Mark Cooley. Thank you so much for your $5 super chat. Uh, so let me ask you a question. Um, how does somebody get involved in this? I have a – my girl wants to know. She's uh, She's a crime detective. On uh, on her off duty time, and uh, she wants to. Uh, she's interested in this. She's in really heavy involved. In, like how how do people get involved in in helping, uh, you know, human trafficking and and putting it into it? Like the average person. You know, I tell you, one of the one of the keys is is raising the level of awareness and education so that we can learn to spot the signs. What's out there? What does it look like? Because a lot of us, you know, we we bury our heads in the sand. We don't want to get involved in the situation. We don't want to know. So if, if we don't know, then it's not happening. And so we do that whole ostrich thing and put our heads down and not think about it. But <clears throat> training the sectors that that intersect with human trafficking are the most important thing. Like. Here's a statistic, and I didn't even believe it, but it's true. Um, almost 90%, 88.9% of trafficking victims have been to a clinical setting and have gone unrecognized as a human trafficking victim. This could have been actually the, the one time when this victim, while they were in captivity, was recognized and rescued. And I'll tell you, you know, a story about this, um, and it goes back to the language barrier and the domestic servitude. We had actually trained a, a hospital staff on an, uh, a lady who um, calls our office and tells us about a woman who comes into the office or comes into the clinic. She's got vertigo. She's malnourished. And when she comes into the office, she uh, the, the nurse separates her from her trafficker. She's from the Philippines and doesn't speak any English. Fortunate for her, the nurse herself was actually from the Philippines and spoke that language as well. So she brings her into the room and starts talking to her. And she came to the United States 37 years ago to be a nanny. 
um, when she did. They took her passport. They took everything that she had. She lived in their basement. She ate the leftovers from the meal. And I don't mean the leftovers that were in the plate that the family didn't get to. I meant like what was on the family's plate when they were done eating. And she got vertigo. She went to the hospital. She'd been in the hospital three times before. But this time the nurse actually spoke her language and talked to her and told her what happened. And they contacted us and explained to us what was going on. And at the time I was already out of the bureau and I contacted one of my uh, close friends who was uh, in charge of that that division's office. And he was my roommate actually at Quantico. We went through the FBI Academy together and I called him up and said, hey, Dennis, listen, I got this case. I want to talk to you about it. And I explained it to him. And I said, here are some photographs. This is what's going on. And uh, they went to the house. Obviously, they didn't open the door. So you know what happens when cops come to the door and they don't open it. They go get a search warrant and come back, open the door. They found this woman in the back room covered in clothes and closet. And they rescue her and bring her out. She's 78 years of age. She's been a domestic slave for 37 years, sleeping on the floor and only eating leftovers. And when you think about that, you think about how many other women, men are out there that have went unrecognized, that have been here for that many years. But what really broke my heart, and like literally I was just like baffled by this, what really broke my heart was the fact that this woman couldn't understand why she couldn't go back to that house. Cause that's all she's ever known for 37 years. That's classic Stockholm syndrome. Classic, classic, classic. Yeah. And that was it. And, you know, she just couldn't, she could she couldn't understand it. So people getting involved is raising the level of awareness so we can recognize these signs and, you know, training somebody in the hospitality industry, um, hotel industry, um, I, the hospital industry, the financial industry, $150 billion a year business. You don't think they're using banks? Yes, they're using banks. Use your SARS, submit your suspicious activity reports. You know, I mean, come on, ten, you know, structuring is structuring. Like it is what it is, right? So we've got to start being more aware of what's going on and feel the need to report it and get involved. It's, it's, you know, all of these, I always tell people like, if you're going to get behind a movement, get behind one that matters. Okay, get behind a movement that matters that could change someone's life. And we've got a hundred and fifty billion dollar year business. Yeah, you could change somebody's life by getting involved in that. What happened to those people that, that held up for 37 years and, and let us sleep on the floor? Anything happened to them? Yeah. Um FBI got involved, Department of Labor got involved, their house got forfeited. Um and it's paying for her, it's paying for the victim to live in a, in a, uh, you know, an aftercare center, um, you know, in her, on her old age. But, you know, it's I always tell people they're like, oh, so it's a happy ending. And I'm like, well, you know, how do you give her 37 years of her life back? It's paying right. for her to, to take care of herself for the rest of her life. But, you know, she didn't even know how old she was when she was here. Yeah. You know, justice was served. And it's always, it's always great when you see justice served, but you know, then again, you always look at the victim and you're like, well, it was served in our eyes, but was it really in, in, in hers? That's, you that's know, Doc, one, of the, one of the things that you talking about this reminded me of is like mandatory reporters, for example, in child abuse. And yeah. we should maybe have something like this for human trafficking. And as you say, uh, nurses, doctors, 
school teachers, uh, you know, I mean, you can't in the same way, like, I think it's, if you don't report a child abuse thing, it could be a misdemeanor. Someone could sure. be actually charged. I don't know if you can make the law that strong in potential human trafficking, because it's maybe not as evident as child abuse is. You know, child abuse, you see a kid with bruises, old injuries, kids not sleeping, the kids severely malnourished. You, as a medical mm -hmm. provider, as a, a mandatory reporter, you have to report that. But maybe human trafficking isn't as obvious as, say, child abuse. Right. And you always tell people, you know, one of one of what I always like to end with 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 people is like, look, here's the thing. It's better to say something and be wrong than to not have said something and had been right. OK, if you report something to law enforcement and you're wrong, they're just going to go work a case and they're going to go. All right. Well, it was wrong. You know, and, and and I had a case that was referred to us by the district attorney's office who she said, hey, listen, I got a friend of mine. And she's an attorney and she reported that she thinks that these people are living on the premise, which is a first sign of human trafficking. It's a nail salon. Um, they opened up the back door. They came down. They came, you know, so they're living upstairs and, you know, don't know if it's anything to it, but it's got, you know, some of the risk factors. Would you would you mind taking a look at it? I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, you spend a week of surveillance on it and you look at it and then you figure it out that actually they they were coming down from upstairs. But what this lady didn't know is the upstairs was actually a parking lot. They were parking their cars upstairs and coming down, coming in through the back door because that's okay. where the garage came through. Every Friday they were going to the bank and depositing their own paychecks. So it wasn't human trafficking. So I went back to her and said, hey, look, it's not human trafficking. It's good. It's not that. She goes, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I waste your time. I said, you didn't waste my time. I'm happy to prove a negative. I'm happy to come out there and go, guess what? Yay. It wasn't human trafficking. You know, that sounded because like the police department. I used to come downstairs <laughs> from there. <laughs> yeah. I was trafficked. Right. Hey, uh, sh shout out to Joshua for his uh, $5 super chat. Uh, but uh, are those uh, places of interest too, nail salons? Because uh, I'm not proud of this, but I, I do frequent them and I don't want to be involved in. <laughs> I do get my toe, my nails done, my toes and my hands from time to time. And I, I don't, I really don't want to be, I always wonder like, you know, how many people here are against their will because, you know, some of these places are busy, you know, mm -hmm. and they're busy. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of workers and um, lot, most of them don't speak any English at all. Right. And I think that's something that we have to, to recognize and be cognizant of is that when we patron businesses where the employees don't interact that much with the customer or scared to talk to them or conversate with them, or you have that language barrier, you know, we know that it, and it is unfortunate when we talk about nail salons, massage parlors, you know, they're at risk because of the language barrier, because the fact that they were brought here to this country and, and could possibly be in an indentured servant. Not that all of them are. So we can't really just blanket it and say every nail salon is uh, labor trafficking and every massage parlor is a house of prostitution. That's not true. You know, what? one thing you figure out, though, is that there's a universal language. Like whenever I take my socks off, my shoes and my socks, and they see my feet, they all of them, no matter where they're from, how much English they speak, they always go, oh. Yeah. And I, that's, that's a universal language for now. That's why I'm coming here. I can't, yeah. I can't do this myself. I need, a, I need some type of uh, hydraulics. Please don't yell to mine. <laughs> what do you got back there? <laughs> so, Doc, as far as let's get back to the, the, the politics of human trafficking.
And obviously there's a lot of politics in it because the previous administration was all about building the wall and stopping illegal immigration. This administration doesn't seem to care about it. They stopped building the wall and they stopped uh, turning people around at the border. That's what I'm hearing from people that are in law enforcement. They're not sending them back to the countries they came from. They're doing the old catch and release, which is documenting who they are, if they even can document who they are, and giving them a piece of paper and say, come back in three months for a hearing, which of course they never show up to. Yeah. And and I think you can, you can, you know, take a, a lesson from the previous administration, whether you believe in, in Trump's politics or, or not, and whether you support his politics or not. He, he was a, a staunch supporter of human trafficking uh, laws. Um, his daughter, Ivanka, was strong supporter of human trafficking laws and wanted to revamp that. And, you know, uh, you, you got to give the man prompts for the fact that that he was hardcore against it, signed a lot of laws um, into it, SESTA law and a few other things where now human traffickers, human trafficking victims can now sue those establishments that facilitated their trafficking. And, you know, when you think about that, how are you how can you be risk averse if you're a hotel chain and you, you didn't educate your people in your hotel, whether it's Hilton, Hyatt or Omni was trafficking victims? I'm not saying they were, but I'm just using them as examples. And then now the, the victim can sue you for that. They could sue Enterprise for the car rentals. They can do the airlines, whatever. And that was great. It was a great law that they did it because, you know, so he was a huge supporter of that and so appreciative of, of the efforts in, in what in what he's done for that and what she pushed for that, too. You know, the current administration, you know, has really kind of opened the door for uh, not being risk averse. And open the door for people to become more vulnerable, particularly with not if you're going to open up the borders. OK, and you're going to do what what we apparently have done, then have a plan to address it. But doing it with no plan uh, to address it just raises the level of vulnerability. And when you, we raise that level of vulnerability, we just have an influx of people coming in that are unaccounted for. Right. And all of these people that are coming in unaccounted for when you're a ghost. And something happens to you, guess what? We don't know something happened to you because you're a ghost. We don't know that. And you could be getting exploited. And you most likely are because the risk factors, when we look at this from, you know, when we look at what what causes you to be trafficked, what gives you the highest level of risk of be trafficked, surely being here undocumented couldn't put you at, at a higher level. And we're not doing anything to address that whatsoever. We don't have enough border control agents right now to work the victims or work the undocumented people coming over. We're pulling from our criminal investigators to help with this. Who's working the drugs that are coming in? Who's working the criminal cases that are coming in? No one, because we can't handle that volume. It's like taking a drink from a fire hydrant right now. It's also different states have different policies. So, for example, ICE is not welcome in certain states. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, and uh, they don't want anything to do with them. And ICE, believe it or not, um, they'll break up. They'll break up all that human trafficking if they they have an idea that there's somebody there, um, that you know, they, they're going to deport whoever else is in that house is probably going to get a thorough working over and, and place in the wherever they should be. So, but none of that's going to happen now. Hmm. 
you know, you'll still get involved in human trafficking because you, you got to support yourself while you're here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But nobody's coming to check on you because they can't ask any questions at all, really. You know, you, know, you have to look at these law enforcement officers who are down there and literally they're like trying to do their job with their hands tied behind their backs. Right. You know, as if it wasn't hard enough to work what they're doing right now, try doing it with your hands behind your back and a blindfold on. Good luck, right. you know, and we're, we're doing that to ourselves and, and making it harder on the people that are trying to protect and serve us. Well, you know, doctor, the other thing is, is like with these, um, these gangs, Salvatrucha, MS-13, they're, I mean, they're just coming here in droves. And I mean, if they don't think they're a danger to the American way of life, then they really need an education. These are really bad gangs. And I know, Trump got over-criticized for emphasizing how dangerous they were, but they are dangerous. And these very gangs get involved in human trafficking themselves. It's a, it's a, it's a portion of their business model, right? I mean, when you look at it, you know, these organizations, you know, yeah, drugs are one thing, counterfeiting are another thing, human trafficking is another thing, smuggling is another thing. It's part of their business model. They're not putting all their eggs in one basket, particularly when you're looking at some of these gangs that, you know, violence is the way that they control, you know, gangs, cartels. I mean, what's the difference when we start looking at it from 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 a business model? And I and it, quite honestly, if you, you know, there'd be a lot of critics out there against Trump, but you have to like the man for his hard attitude on uh, against crime and, and, and against, you know, you know, he wanted to make drug cartels, terrorist organizations. Why not? Because that's what they are. When you right. when you look at it, that's that's exactly what they're what they're doing. And, you know, we have to be tough on these individuals and, and not be so welcoming to violence, um, because there is that spillover effect that will happen in our country if we're not careful uh, enough to, to kind of keep it where it needs to be. Well, unfortunately, a lot of these crimes that you're talking about, this human trafficking, they're in neighborhoods, uh, and they cater; those neighborhoods cater to a certain demographics, and that demographics is frequent in these places, um, and it's not; it's their neighborhoods. It's not like you not you know. It's not like where wealthy people are going. Uh, a lot of it's going unrecognized because it's just the neighborhood frequenting. And, you know, that place that you go to, which uh, which is the whorehouse in the neighborhood, they have new girls, uh, you know, every couple of weeks, three weeks, whatever. Well, I don't even know how, I have no idea, but I'm just, it just, it's just constant influx. And they move them around. They move well, them to, around. To avoid detection, right? To avoid well, detection. Well, it's also to cater to their clientele. Sure, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, you go back. There's there's a new one now. You know, you tell your friends, but yeah. it's all these this certain uh, the neighborhoods, depending on which ones they are. So if you have a lot of undocumented workers, they're going to go to that place once a week after they got paid, and they're going to go and get their sex on. You know what I'm saying? They're not. They don't have really a lot of family here. They they're working. They're maybe they're sending the money back home. But they're going to go, and th that's how the, this vicious cycle continues. Because now you go there, that's the local who are, uh, you know, whorehouse, and uh, and those girls are coming from probably somewhere near you, your country, but they're coming here undocumented, and uh, they have to work, like you say, either to pay off or to figure out a way to get out of it. 
but it's just a vicious circle, and most people wouldn't even know about it. No, and, and most people don't care to know about it, and I think that's what it is. It's the least and the lost. It's it's people have have become to a point where we've just decided as a society that uh, you know we don't want to get involved in this. We don't want to. Well, there's also the the other type too, which is like the girls, like you said, they get abducted or they 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 run away, and now all of a sudden uh, they meet people online. And before you know it, they start working for that particular person. And now we're talking about in 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 every you know, like not just neighborhoods where, you know, it's a lower class neighborhood. Maybe nobody speaks English there. We're talking about other neighborhoods where, once again, prostitution comes in. But now this is somebody who met him online, brings him in, mm -hmm. uh, feeds him a little bit, gives him a place to lay their head, and next thing you know, they're turning tricks. I think the, the biggest concern right now that we have to be uh, ready to forecast is the fact that w the online aspect, we don't, we know that you don't physically have to possess a person, a victim to traffic them. And what's, what's even more concerning is what we, what we've seen over the COVID era where these girls have been sextorted, where they have been oh, within yeah. a, Within an hour, statistics show that a person can get a, uh, you know, an erotic photo from a young person. Yeah, I had cases like that. It's become acceptable to them to send a picture of their body parts to people. And then that person uses that to, you know, what we would call in school extortion, but to sextort them. Yeah, send me another picture where I'm going to share this. Right. And then they, now what they're doing is they're creating an, a live stream room where they're they're forcing these girls to perform sex acts in these live stream rooms and then selling seats to people around the globe. So they're trafficking these girls now virtually. Wow. And, and, and it, and it shows that, you know, only 40% of these girls report this to law enforcement and it usually takes about two years before they tell their parents. So how many victims are out there that we don't know about because the statistics around human trafficking are not solid at all. They're not. And I always try to tell people, they're like, well, what's the stats for this? And what's the stats for that? And I said, stats are great if they're reported properly and captured properly. Yeah, of course. Hey, so uh, we're almost getting at the end here. Before we uh, decide to wrap up, I just want to ask you a question because you mentioned uh, you were driving around with somebody from NCIS, right? You mentioned mm -hmm. that earlier. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the show. It wasn't Mark Harmon, was it? No, it, was. <laughs> it wasn't. But he did. He does like to bring it up that he's like, I wish that my my job would have been as exciting as the TV show. Yeah, and I said, I, I bet you do. <laughs> Doc, could you just give us a, like a one or two minute uh, spiel on Hope for Justice and what you do for them? Yeah, let me tell you. You know, this is this is such a such a great organization, and I became involved with them about. A little over five years ago and when i retired from law enforcement and i began teaching college i started looking for jobs on indeed for students in my class and i saw so who is this organization and talk to them and uh they but they were new in the united states and uh is actually working for him. This Let me talk to you. I think he froze up, Bill. Yeah, Doc, you're, you're freezing. Yeah. You're, fr you're freezing up a little bit. Okay. You hear me now? Am I good now? Now you better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So 
So I started looking into looking into the organization book that had a picture. I think I think we're losing you. What? Where is? Where are you? He's in Tennessee. Oh, in Tennessee. Yeah. yeah. Do you hear me now? Yeah, but now you're, you're kind coming of back. But you you were fading okay. out. All right. Yeah, I don't know why I was fading out. My internet's usually pretty pretty solid from here, but you know the organization's on five continents. We've got offices. Uh, at about 48 locations across the globe. Uh, in the United States, our headquarters is in Nashville, but we have offices in Colorado, uh, the Midwest, uh, Florida, uh, D.C., um, North Carolina. We provide rescue, restoration, uh, reform. So we, we hire a lot of retired law enforcement agencies, agents who, do, who are licensed PIs, who do inv an investigative component for us and work with law enforcement. And we also work with prosecutors to present these cases in court. Uh, and then we also work with lawmakers to try to reform. But then we also have aftercare centers for these victims because we know that the the rescue is not just an event. It's kind of a process to get them to where they need to be whole again. And I think you need nonprofits uh, in this fight against human trafficking uh, to work hand in hand with law enforcement to bring a holistic approach to combating this this crime. Doc, you know something? You're a real hero doing this. You are. It's a fantastic thing, and it's not, not a very thankful, thankful thing. Not many people are going to be patting you on the back, but you're doing God's work, as we used to say in the homicide business. You know, yeah. you really are doing God's work. Uh, Mark, any final thoughts? Uh, I'm going to be at uh, the brokerage um, this Saturday night in Belmore, Long Island. Showtime is 7.30 p.m., I'll be doing at least 50 minutes. It's going to be great. I'm going to slap everybody around. <laughs> um, if you want to get your tickets, uh, just visit the, uh, I think it's called uh, the brokerage govs, uh, dot, um, dot com. But if you just go to governors, governors.com, if you live on Long Island, I mean, it's a perfect night out, especially since everything's opening up right now. Uh, come on, 7.30 showtime. You'll be back in bed. By ten o'clock, and you'll you'll have laughed your ass off, and uh, you'll be happy that you came out. Trust me, Doctor Schobel. I would just like to uh, leave it open in the future to have you come back on again. I'm sure we didn't even scratch the surface of your career, and of your even your academic career. We didn't even talk much about terrorism, and I know your expertise is uh, could fill up many novels. So uh, we'd like we'd to like leave to an open invitation to you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, welcome back. If you're working on a case or something like that and you need some help, we'll uh, definitely have you on. We can share whatever you have to share. Uh, it's really interesting work what you're doing. I'm fascinated by it. And uh, I know a lot of people are, are fascinated by it too because it's something that we're constantly hearing about, human trafficking. Human trafficking. Mm -hmm. We don't understand really like, uh, like you said, what we're talking about right now and how all this kind of sort of works together. And there's different levels of it. And uh, you broke it down for us, and I really appreciate that. I appreciate that. So thanks. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Just yeah. one more little spiff for Joseph Murray, attorney at law. Don't get in trouble like you're going to need him. But if you do get in trouble, there is his website, jmurray-law.com. And he's a huge supporter of Police Off the Cuff. want to thank you again, Joe Murray. And again, thank you, Dr. Richard Schobel, former FBI, 25 FBI agent, CIA expert on terrorism and uh, a hell of a good guy. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks guys. Keep up the good work. Appreciate it. Thank you, man.
Everyone, good night from a police off the coast. Thanks for tuning in.